Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You get humbled a lot by nature. You really figure out that you can't control nature. You're really sort of responding to it and uh, using what nature gives you. And I think I developed a really deep appreciation for that. To say that Adam Campbell has a complicated relationship with nature would be a huge understatement. This is a man who has devoted his entire life to his love of mountains, running them, climbing them, competing on them. He was an elite level ultra marathoner collecting podium finishes at prestigious races all over the world. I had this really vivid image of the mountains behind me flipped upside down. And I had time to think like just how strange it was that that was probably the last thing I was ever going to see. Adam had broken his entire body and along with it, an identity that he didn't know how to live without. But with the help of the love of his life, Laura, he was able to find his way back to the mountains he missed so dearly. Until tragedy struck again. An avalanche that killed his wife, Laura, while they were skiing early last year. Today, lessons on grief and loss from a loving husband and what to do when life throws you unimaginable curveballs. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one charitable podcast. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank those of you who have recently left such lovely reviews of the show on Apple Podcast. I read every single one and they never fail to light me up and root me on to continue making these episodes and sharing them with you. So thank you to each and every one of you who has made the time to rate and review the podcast. On that note, if you have any feedback to share with us, ideas for guests, or anything you think we can do different, better, or more of, you can email us or send us a voice memo at hello at allthewiserpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. And finally, if you are new to the show, welcome. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. What that means is for every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to a charity helping people in need. Today's charity is selected by our guest, Adam Campbell, the Climbing Grief Fund, which offers mental health resources to individuals and is evolving the conversation around grief and trauma in the climbing and ski mountaineering community. 
Now on to my conversation with the marvelous Adam Campbell. Hello, Adam, and welcome to All the Wiser. Hi, Kimmy. Thanks for having me. So I always like to start our interviews by having our guests introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Adam Campbell. Um, I'm based in the Canadian Rockies in a town called Canmore, which is about uh, 13 miles outside of Banff, Alberta. I'm a lawyer by profession, but I'm also a mountain adventure athlete. And so what does that mean? It means I basically like to move under my own power in the mountains and in the summers that's rock climbing and running and scrambling and in the winter it's mostly backcountry skiing with a little bit of ice climbing and you i won't say selling yourself short but to say <laughs> you are beyond accomplished in all of those things and hold many records so just a phenomenal very accomplished athlete for sure oh. <laughs> i I'm curious about growing up. What can you tell me about the backdrop of your childhood? Well, yeah, okay. So the backdrop of my childhood would not paint my current love of big mountains. Um, so my, my parents are both Canadian, but I was raised in Lagos, Nigeria, which is, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, it's on the west coast of, of Africa, just above the equator. So it's incredibly tropical. And about as far away from the big mountains as one could ever imagine. And it's, it's a mega city. It's one of the most populated cities in the world. So my dad's parents were both diplomats. So my dad was raised around the world as a, as a kid. And I think that that uh, instilled um, this sense of wanting to see the bigger world. And my mom uh, left home, the first person in her family at the age of 19 to go to Europe and met my dad and basically stayed away for the next 30 plus years, uh, you know, raising a family in a place like West Africa. So I, I think that uh, speaks a lot. You know, they, it was a family that placed a lot of emphasis on education, uh, but then also just, you know, deep world experiences. So we traveled a lot as, as a family growing up around Africa and Europe. And um, so it was a really, really privileged childhood in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that sort of innate sense of curiosity and adventure when you share that makes so much sense that that was really, to some extent, you know, the early influence and backdrop. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, although it was it's kind of funny because the rest of my family hates the cold and here I am, you know, climbing, you know, frozen waterfalls in the winter and, and looking out, searching out steep ski lines. So we took our curiosity in different directions. And I want to talk about your love of the outdoors. And and really, Adam, when I read about you, love sounds like a small word to me because it, it seems to just literally run through you and is such a, a piece of you and your life. Where did that connection, obviously, you know, the, the travel and the adventure, you you spoke to that already, but your your love of outdoors and not only your love of outdoors, but the combination of the competitive drive, clearly, you know, competing against your yourself and your own records, but that combination of outdoor adventure sports and competitive drive. Where does that begin for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where where the competitive drive comes from. Uh, I don't know if that's something you're born with or <laughs> you know you develop. But my my love about the outdoors. It, basically, growing up, we didn't have television or any other distraction like that. So most of my childhood was just spent playing outside and I just loved it. Um, we, we grew up on the ocean. So I spent 
you know, a lot of my childhood playing on the ocean. I'd say my first love of, of nature was on, you know, the beachfront of, uh, of Lagos, Nigeria. Um, so they has, it actually has these really beautiful sandy beaches. And um, I, I loved body surfing and surfing and sailing. And uh, there's just something about being able to escape the chaos of this mega city, Lagos, and being able to get out into these wild spaces and just the sense of freedom there. You know, and as a 12-year-old kid getting into a little sailboat and sailing on the ocean, that's a pretty freeing view. And so I think I just uh, I just loved moving outdoors. And, I, th- you know, you get humbled a lot uh, by nature when you're trying to surf or, or sail. You really figure out that you can't control nature. You're really sort of responding to it and uh, using what nature gives you. And I think I developed a really deep appreciation for that. And when I, when I moved back to Canada, when I was uh, 17, I went to boarding school and all of a sudden I was presented with this like big wide open space. And that's where my love for sort of Canadian backcountry came about. And I started doing outward bound trips. Um, so these big canoe trips, mostly in Northern Ontario and so it'd be, you know, one to three to four week uh, backcountry canoe trips. And there I really learned to love just sleeping in nature as well. And I want to set the stage. We're going to talk a lot about nature and your life in Canada. And we're also going to talk about your wife who you lost in a tragic accident, Laura. And I, I would love it if you could set the stage just where you were in your life, literally, you know, physically, emotionally, where were you in your life at the time period before you met Laura? I was a professional athlete for a number of years. I was on the Canadian national triathlon team. So I was competing around the world as a, as a triathlete. I was married at the time and my wife was also a professional triathlete. And uh, that relationship ended um, in, in quite a traumatic way for me, quite unexpectedly. And you know, maybe I, I kind of lacked some maturity at the time and, and didn't really see see it coming. But, um, you know, losing uh, my wife, Lauren, and having that marriage fall apart, really, it shook me to my core at the time. And I didn't really have many emotional coping mechanisms for it. And so I actually just buried myself in sports. And it was, it was like I couldn't feel fatigue. There was just so much turmoil in my life that when I was out in the mountains, I just didn't feel anything. So I could run long and and, and fast. And, uh, it, and it was a strange phenomenon because I'd go and do races and I'd be getting applauded for having success at these big international races, finishing on the podium, but I wasn't happy and I, was, I wasn't getting a real sense of fulfillment for it. But you're also searching for a little, I don't know, my, like I had no real sense of self-worth, you know, so I would hold on to those little moments of fleeting moments of uh, congratulations, basically. So the outside accolades are coming in, the praise, the awards, the records, but inside you're numb and not happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I didn't really understand that I was, uh, you know, to some degree grieving the loss of that relationship. And it just, I had no foundation. You know, you can, you can build a beautiful building, but if your foundation's shaky, it'll eventually that whole thing will crumble. And that, that's basically what was happening to me at the time. So... You're grieving the loss of your marriage and your divorce to your to your wife, Lauren. And as you've said, that you're running from it, right? You're running from the pain, the loneliness, the emptiness. But I would love for you to explain 
what, in fact, your body is enduring, the length, the duration. Because when I read it for somebody, you know, who's never competed, certainly at that level, it's just phenomenal to envision you. So can you paint the picture of, at that time, you know, what endurance sports you're doing and what they look like? Yeah. So at the time um, of my marriage with Lauren breaking up, I was, uh, I was I was doing these mountain ultra marathons, and a description of one of the races I did, uh, for instance, called the Hard Rock 100. It's in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado, and it's a hundred mile race, um, so 160 kilometers for my my friends in uh, uh, the metric system. And the race has 33,000 feet of elevation gain and elevation loss. So you're you're running across a series of mountains, and um, you're going up to 14,000 feet and you're at an average elevation of 11,000 feet. So you're really, really high altitude as well. And the trails are, uh, you know, it's a really rocky, um, it's, it's not quite scrambling, but you're, you're moving through really, really mountainous terrain. And, um, I finished third at the race and it took me 25 hours to do this run. So you're running through a complete day. And through something like that, you go through as many highs and lows as you would in a normal day. It's, uh, it, it really is something else to, to try to come up with reasons to keep pushing yourself because you know, you're deeply, deeply fatigued. It's a really, really daunting task. And uh, you're ultimately just trying to keep moving one foot in front of the other, getting it done. You know, I've read your first marriage was early. How old were you? when you met Laura, who would eventually become your wife? I was about 35. And so I met Laura, who would become my wife, when I was in this, that sort of vulnerable, broken state. You know, but I instantly knew that I'd met somebody special when I met her. She was incredibly beautiful. You know, she loved the outdoors and mountains the same way I did. She was whip smart, you know, like one of the smartest people I'd ever met. Uh, from the first conversation I had with her, it was just such an engaging conversation. And she just had this way of connecting with you. Like she would look at you in a way that you knew she was genuinely listening. You know, the, her whole body language would just invite you to, to speak with her. And um, she also had this like really fun streak as well. You know, you could have really deep, serious conversations, but you could also just have really silly jokes with her. And I, I just love that whole attitude around her. And, um, you know, she started to pierce my shell, basically. But it took a little while to get there. But uh, she was definitely something special. Well, you know, I was going to ask you to bring her to life for us and sort of share what attracted you to her. And without asking either of those things, you just did exactly <laughs> that. So thank you. And I have to say, in researching for this interview, I saw pictures of you guys. And there really is... Just something, even looking at the pictures of, of Laura, I was like, I want to be her friend. That would be my friend. I mean, she, mm -hmm. she, she has something and I think you just, you know, put it in words, but I could also see it in the pictures that you share of her. Yeah, it's kind of funny because um, <laughs> she had this habit of calling people bud, like buddy, <laughs> like, so it was a short version of buddy. And so she had a lot of buds and I remember, uh, she called me bud after like our third or fourth date. And I was like, it really confused me. Cause I was like, this sounds like I'm getting put in like the friend category, but I'm pretty sure that she's interested in me <laughs> romantically, <laughs> but it was just the way that she spoke. 
Yeah, you're like, I thought this was going a different direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about the early days of your relationship. Yeah, so, you know, aside from having really wonderful conversations with Laura, uh, we also shared this really deep love of, of nature and, and of the mountains. So some of our earliest dates were actually going into the mountains together. Um, so we climbed some some of the bigger peaks and, uh, you know, started backcountry skiing together. So she became a life partner, but also a partner in the mountains. And when you do stuff in the mountains with somebody, there's a really unique bond because you're entrusting your life to this other person. When you're going climbing, you're tying into a rope together. And that's, you know, aside from um, the physical attachment, you know, there's also quite a strong, uh, like metaphorical one there as well, because literally that that rope is keeping you both alive, is keeping you both to the side of the mountain, and you're both tied into it. So you're attached together, protecting each other and looking out for each other. And when you're out in those really beautiful places, but in somewhat dangerous environments, you end up having really honest and powerful experiences and conversations with people as well. So it, you know, it really entrenched our relationship. And a lot of our time together was spent having these really deep, profound experiences in the mountains together. And, you know, as you said, you and Laura are falling in love. And and part of that is your time together in the mountains. And I know in 2016, you had an accident that changed your life and your relationship, a mountaineering accident. Can you share how things unfolded that day? Yeah. So one of the ways I like to move in the mountains is to move light and fast. Uh, There's an incredibly freeing way of doing that. So you're basically climbing unroped through technical terrain and trying to see how many peaks you can you can cover in a day, for instance. And so a, a couple of friends and, and I, my friends Nick and Dakota, were in Rogers Pass, British Columbia, which is it's like the heart of Canadian mountaineering. And so we were trying to link up these 14 peaks in a in a day, which had never been done before. The previous fastest time was about three and a half days. But uh, we we're taking um, a, a trail running approach to these and uh, trying to move in, in a very efficient way. Um, as I said, mostly unroped. So we we started at six o'clock in the morning and we set off and we were about three peaks into the mountains and um, Nick and Dakota were a little bit ahead of me. And uh, as we were going up this, um, going up this buttress, all of a sudden um, I felt a, a block pull out from my hands and I was rushing a little bit and uh I wasn't fully steady. And as I pulled on this block about the size of a, a small fridge, uh, like a little, um, like a, a bar room fridge, uh, it pulled out and I ended up uh, falling about 200 feet down the side of the mountain. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. I still get really, really vivid flashbacks to, to tumbling down the side of this mountain because I, I stayed conscious throughout the, the whole experience. I was wearing a helmet at the time, which uh, which ultimately saved my life. And I didn't fall. It wasn't a straight 200 feet. I, I bounced off uh, some ledges. And I remember tumbling down the ledges and at one point thinking, okay, I'm alive. And then I kept falling again and being like, crap, I'm, I'm not. And uh, I, I have this really vivid image of the uh, the mountains behind me flipped upside down. And I, and I had time to think uh, like just how strange it was that that was probably the last thing I was ever going to see. 
and when I get my flashbacks, I still see that those mountains flipped upside down the the horizon. And uh, Nick and Dakota saw me fall, and they instantly started climbing down the mountain. But they were convinced they were coming down for a body retrieval because they saw me fall over two hundred feet. But when they started coming closer to me, they realized that I was I was actually making noise. I was I was screaming or moaning, so they realized I was alive. And uh, I was carrying a backpack with a little emergency beacon in my pack uh, to be able to call for search and rescue. And um, so we deployed that. And the top of the previous mountain had cell signal at it. A lot of this park uh, doesn't, but that one peak did. So uh, one of the handy things about having some of the best ultra runners in the world with you is they're able to move quite quickly. So uh, Nick was able to run up to the previous peak and call 911 and let them know what was happening. And um, within an hour and a half, a search and rescue helicopter had flown over us and they were able to, to pull me off the mountain. And um, so it turned out I, I'd broken my back and my hip and my ankle and I had deep lacerations across my entire body, but I was alive, you know, just due to dumb luck, really. Um, nothing, nothing more than that. I just fell in the right way and, uh, you know, I was operated on for over nine hours. So as you shared, you make it to the hospital, nine hours of surgery. What do you remember about waking up? Yeah, so when I when I woke up in, in hospital, one, I, I, I asked where I was um, because I, I was flown by air ambulance about uh, 200 miles away from where I had my accident. So I woke up in uh, at Kamloops General Hospital. And when I came to, Laura was there as well as my mom. And I just remember being so grateful and having these people around me. So Laura was actually in medical school at the time. And for anybody who's been in a hospital after suffering trauma, hospitals are really, really scary and confusing places. You know, you've, you don't plan on being there. You just had this incredibly traumatic experience. There's loud noises everywhere. You're, people are speaking this whole different language about parts of your body that, are, you know, what's going on. You're, you're tied up to machines it's a really, really scary place. So Laura was able to uh, basically translate everything that was happening for me and, you know, in layman terms and in, in a way I can better understand and um, explain everything along the process. And, you know, I want to have you speak a little bit more to gratitude. I've heard you talk about this chapter in your life that really gratitude and love were, were two things that were instrumental and your recovery, but there's also this juxtaposition that in learning about this time in your life from superhero athlete to being in diapers in a hospital bed, having people mm -hmm. care for you and what that experience was like. So can you share a little bit more about, you know, the color of your early days? And I think both that humbling piece and the gratitude piece. Yeah. So one thing that sort of defined my my entire life from really really young childhood age has sort of has been my physical self. You know, I've relied on it one for identity. I've always you know really really enjoyed sports, and it's a form of expression as well. And uh, as you know, as I got more into these mountain sports, and uh, especially following uh, my divorce, you know, I started to develop this this sense that I was this strong, independent, self-resilient man. You know, I, you know, I'm the guy that runs up mountains, you know, and that was, you know, I, I did take some pride in that identity. 
And uh, when I fell off the mountain and broke my body, you know, that entire identity was shattered. I couldn't perform the most basic of tasks. Like I, my whole body responded really badly to the um, pain meds I was on and, and also to the trauma. And I, and I swelled up in, 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 in quite a significant way. And um, having a broken back and hip, I, I wasn't mobile. So I was relying on total strangers, like nurses, to perform the most basic of tasks, like, you know, cleaning my body, you know, literally wiping my ass after taking a shit. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't, I wasn't mobile enough. So here I was, and you know, the day before this strong, resilient man that would run through mountains to suddenly being entirely dependent on others. And that was so, so humbling. And uh, as I say, it, it sort of crushed my entire facade of, of independence. And I also realized that, you know, I, I wasn't this sort of lone wolf, you know, I, I, I really did depend on the people around me, my family, uh, especially. Um, and then I also had friends come and visit me from, you know, from across Canada, you know, they would drive hours and hours and just seeing them just would, you know, lift my spirits and it sort of, it allowed me to heal and just feeling this pouring of love from other people. I really understood, made me fully aware of how important community is to our you know our most basic needs and in this case it was just trying to be comfortable and happy in this really really confusing and scary time and they provided that comfort to me through their love and by showing up and i think that's uh it, it was an incredible lesson for me so as i hear you speak it really softened you in a sense and opened you up and I know you also credit the accident and your experience after to shaping and changing your relationship with Laura. How did your relationship change as a result? Laura, she ended up taking a month off of her, her medical residency to come and help look after me. And while I was in the hospital bed, I was like, no, I really, really care for this woman. She really is just a wonderful person. And just being around her makes me feel better. And I, I kind of vowed right there to, to open up to her. And I, was, and I was also just really afraid about what all the accident and uh, what my future is going to look like. And um, I think in those moments of deep fear, you just allow yourself to be more vulnerable. And I didn't hide it. And I, uh, I just sort of embraced the vulnerability and the fear and allowed it to be part of the overall experience. And from there, that allowed me to open up to Laura and really trust her. And in turn, that allowed her to see a softer side of me. I wasn't just this like adventure partner. You know, I, I was also, I don't know. And I found this happens quite a lot. The more vulnerable and open you are with people, it allows them to share the same with you. And you end up having even deeper connections with those people, um, especially people that are close to you. And it's, it's incredibly powerful. And I think that uh, really blossomed our relationship. And when did you guys get married or decide to get married? And I was, you know, curious about what you had. I, I think when people certainly begin a life together and the commitment that comes with choosing to get married or, you know, commit to partnership, there's a shared vision. So I was curious about when you decided to get married and the vision that you shared for the life you were creating together? Yeah. So after the accident, um, 
we both knew that we wanted to to base ourselves in a smaller community, ideally in the mountains, and that was definitely a shared value. But we also knew that we we wanted to travel quite a lot and experience the world. And so Laura was a family doctor, and she would go and volunteer at clinics in places like Guatemala, throughout South America or South Africa. And uh, she always knew that was going to be a part of her her practice as well. You know, once again, that sort of speaks to her 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 adventure spirit, but also her character wanting to go and help in, the, in these places. So that uh, you know, after after a few months, you know, um, she helped nurse me back to being able to walk a little bit. And she went off to Guatemala to go work in one of these clinics. And I went down and visited her for a little while. And when we were there, we just had this amazing time. I was starting to walk a bit more. So we went, you know, like camping on the side of volcanoes there and experiencing a completely different culture. And when I was there, I, I knew instantly that uh, I was going to propose to her. And so I went back and bought a ring and um, was sort of waiting for the right time. I, I wanted to do it in, in a way that, that felt meaningful. And we, uh, from there, we went to a friend's wedding on in Oahu, on the North Shore of Hawaii. And uh, we'd gone for a really beautiful hike that morning, and we were body surfing in Waimea Bay. Uh, Waimea Bay is a really famous big big wave surfing area, but this was a day when the waves were a little smaller. And um, we were sort of playing around on some rocks on the beach. And uh, I just knew I actually had the ring in my pocket, and I, I kind of figured this would be the day. And I remember sort of fumbling with it the entire time I was playing, making sure I wasn't didn't lose it to the ocean. <laughs> and um, yeah, when we got out of the water, I went and I proposed to her right there, and uh, she instantly said yes. And it was a really really special moment. You know, me in board shorts, her in her her bikini, uh, you know, both covered in sweat and salt water, and it was uh, it, it was ideal. Um, and we went and from there went over and uh, met some friends at one of the local food trucks and told them what happened, and we all drank you know, beers together and sort of celebrated. And the next day, our friend had a beautiful wedding party and um, we got to dance the night away. That sounds like the perfect beginning <laughs> to the engagement uh, based on what I have learned about the two of you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and we, and we didn't, uh, we didn't really want to wait too long. Neither one of us wanted to have a big wedding. So we, uh, we booked out this little mountain hut in our town and, uh, you know, it could fit 50 people. And so we invited uh, 50 people, 50 of our closest friends and family. And uh, it just threw a big party in the woods, basically, as our wedding. So it was a very rustic, uh, intimate wedding. And it was, once again, an amazing dance party in the woods. So you and Laura are married, dance party in the mountains. What are the early years of your marriage like? Yeah, so right after our wedding... Laura just finished um, her residency, and she'd started a at a family practice in in Canmore, and our it's a town of fifteen thousand people, and uh, you know really sort of establishing our roots in this town of Canmore, and uh, you know we'd spend our weekends backcountry skiing in the winter or rock climbing and trail running in the summer and camping as much as possible and just trying to spend as much time outside as we could while trying to you know lead fulfilling professional lives as well. And it, uh, it really felt perfect in every way possible. And I want to go to the day of the accident, the avalanche that took Laura's life. How long had you guys been married at this point? So Laura and I just got married in July of 2017. And then in, uh, on January 2020, uh, January 10th, 2020, uh, we were going to go meet a friend 
who's a local ski guide, just one of the the better skiers I know, to go for a day of just fun recreational backcountry skiing. And the avalanche uh, forecasts were rated as, as considerable, which is you know relatively dangerous avalanche forecast because it had snowed a lot. But that also means you can have really phenomenal skiing and. If you kind of choose your your terrain carefully, you can find some really, really great ski days in those sorts of conditions. But they are they are quite dangerous. But um, you know, as I said, Kevin is one of the most experienced mountain guides um, that I know. And Laura and I are both also had the highest level of recreational training. And you know, I was a I'm a professional athlete and sit on the board of Avalanche Canada. So with uh, you know extensive extensive training as well. And so we chose an area that we thought we could manage the risk on on the day. And, uh, you know, we met at seven o'clock in the morning and it was uh, a dark, stormy day. And we drove the hour and a half together to get out to this this area in Banff National Park. And what do you, you know, remember, it sounds like it was an early morning, but now looking back, you know, setting the stage of what would end up being your final day with Laura, what do you remember about it now as you look back? Yeah. Um, so I actually, Laura actually had to go into the hospital that morning to go and just check in on a couple patients. And so I remember she went in wearing her her work attire and I had her ski gear in the back of my van. And, uh, you know, I sent her a text saying, you know, I'm here. She's like, yeah, I'll be out in a few minutes. And uh, she came out and got changed in the back of the van into her, into her backcountry ski gear. And uh, we set off together and it was a stormy day. And I remember we were both really excited. Any day you get to go Backcountry skiing is it was a good day to us. You know, we both love powder skiing and said it snowed overnight. So we were expecting a really fun day of powder skiing, which is the best way of describing it to people is it feels a little bit like floating or flying almost through the mountains. So it's a, it's a really wonderful feeling. And we were also excited to get to spend time with our friend Kevin, who is, uh, you know, you get to learn from somebody like that in the mountains. It's, uh, once again, a really special day. So... Can you walk me through the series of events once you get to the mountain and yeah. the avalanche itself? Yeah. So, so for people who don't know, when you're when you're backcountry skiing, you're you're going to an area that there's no there's no ski lifts at it. So you um, you actually you have special skis with there are these skins that you put on the bottom of your skis that allow you to to climb up the mountains. So you uh, you ascend the mountain, and then when you get to the top, you pull these skins off. You lock your boots into place and you ski down the run. So we you, we start in the trees, and um, when the avalanche hazard is like this, you you typically stay in the trees. You don't go into big open areas. And so we we skinned up, and uh, we you know we did our first run, and you ski one at a time. And you know as we skied as we skied the line, we we realized that you know things were a little bit touchy out there, but the skiing was also phenomenal. So we made our way over to a different ridge and skinned up again, and skied this really beautiful powder run down and had a great time. And we all decided we were going to do one more lap. Um, you know, the temps were quite cold and it was quite windy and you don't want to be pushing the margins too much. So we, we climbed up one more time for a third and final run. We sort of assessed the area. We talked about where we were going to go. And um, basically when you're, when you're skiing, giving somebody first tracks is like, one of the greatest honors in backcountry skiing. It's the coolest feeling. You get to paint your line down the slope. And so we gave Laura first tracks on this final run. And, uh, you know, she skied off down down the line and waited for us at a patch of trees at the bottom of the slope. And, uh, you know, it looks like she was having a great time. And then uh, 
Kevin went next and I moved forward to watch Kevin ski because I said he's a, you know, one of the best skiers I've ever seen ski. And uh, it was just, it's just a beauty thing to, to behold. And so I'm watching Kevin ski and I'm, I move forward onto this, uh, onto this roll. And the second I step onto the roll, the entire slope I'm standing on gives way underneath my feet. And uh, I instantly realize that uh, I triggered an avalanche. And uh, so this uh, 300 foot crown of snow uh, ripped at my feet and I started to go down in the avalanche. And so I, I quickly like fall onto my ski pole to try to, to brace myself. So I'm able to stop myself from going in the avalanche and I start yelling avalanche, avalanche at the top of my lungs. But um, yeah, Kevin and Laura were a little bit too far away from me and, and the winds are quite, uh, quite loud. So they didn't hear me yelling anything. And uh, Kevin said that he saw Laura look over her shoulder. He could see her and uh, she started scurrying and so that got him to look over his shoulder and he uh, saw the avalanche. And so he ducked out of the way of it. And so I'm standing at the top of the slope and I see this huge powder cloud go down and um, I instantly knew that you know, the things were bad. It was a huge avalanche, one of the biggest avalanches I'd ever seen triggered. But I thought Laura and Kevin were safe. So I, I skied, I made my way over to a safe area so I wouldn't trigger anything else on top of them or get caught in another slide myself. And I made my way down as quickly as possible to Kevin because he was the first person I saw. I mean, I saw Kevin, he said, I saw Laura go into the trees, just start yelling her name. So we start yelling, Laura, Laura, we don't get a response. And uh, when you're backcountry skiing, everybody's wearing a, um, it's a little transceiver. So it's this little radio device uh, that you wear under your clothing that emits a signal. And uh, it allows you to find each other in case of an avalanche. And so Kevin, uh, you know, quickly starts, uh, turns his beacon to search mode and I do the same. And uh, it was a really, really complicated search. So this, this beacon draws you towards the other person and uh, it starts pulling us into this, uh, this depression into a little bit of a, a waterfall feature. And uh, the beacon gives you numbers telling you how far away you are from the person. And so we were getting these readings. So you know, Kevin's yelling out 20, 15, 12, 10, and the lowest reading we got was four meters, which is about 12 and a half feet. So that meant that Laura was buried 12 and a half feet under the snow where she was. And when you, you hear something like that, you instantly know that that's a really, really serious, very, very deep burial. And the other thing you carry when you're backcountry skiing is a, is a long probe. So it's a long um, like carbon fiber or aluminum probe that folds up um, so you can start digging. But the probe that we had it was only about 10 feet long. So we couldn't actually probe to see where Laura was. So we actually had to start digging out. So you're also carrying avalanche shovels. So Kevin and I start frantically digging until we can complete the probe strike to find out exactly where she was. And so we just started digging at that point. And I know you can't dig directly down. It actually is a longer route than the 12 feet, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So if you were to dig a hole straight down, the snow would just start falling on top of you and you wouldn't be able to remove the person from the hole. So you, you actually have to like tunnel in towards them. So we actually had to start digging about 30 feet out and dig in towards Laura. So it ended up taking us over an hour to get to Laura. And this whole time, Kevin is uh, 
trying to keep me on task uh, because I'm just on the verge of, uh, you know, of losing it mentally this entire time. I, you know, I was very task focused. Like I knew that we had to, to dig frantically, but at the same time, I knew that with every passing minute, Laura's chance of survival was, was decreasing. And, um, it was, it was the most horrific experience of my life having to, to dig, um, for Laura and, you know, I'm, I'm yelling, trying to, you know, streaming, hoping she can hear me under the snow. And because what one thing you can hope for is that um, there's an air pocket that can form around the person. And uh, eventually, after an hour, we got to her uh, her airway, and um, we could see her face, and she was blue and, and was not conscious. And uh, Kevin, you know, went in to feel a pulse, and he said he could feel one, but uh, it turns out he was he, he was lying just to try to keep me keep me focused. But the way that Laura's body was, it was she, her body, her legs were upslope, so her face was downslope from her legs. So we had to keep digging for another 45 minutes to be able to fully remove her from the from the snow. And, uh, you know, I was trying to talk to her through the entire time, trying to, you know, hoping she could hear me. Because one thing that can happen to people that when they go hypothermic is uh, your body can actually preserve itself, you know, as your heart rate slows. It can actually, and, and as the body gets cooled, it can actually be a way of preserving the body. So people have survived these these long exposures. It's very rare, but it, it has happened. And so I was trying to remind myself of that while also not like totally losing my shit, if you don't mind me saying that. But during this time, we'd also um, once again deployed the, uh, the emergency search and rescue beacon. And so we knew that search and rescue was on its way. And uh, they helicoptered in two people after about two hours after Laura's avalanche. And uh, it was a couple of friends of ours. And uh, when they saw us, I remember them just sort of, you know, looking at us and looking at the situation. We instantly knew it was, it was really grim. And by this point we'd pulled Laura out of the hole and we'd covered her with as many warm clothes as we could. And I was just sitting there, uh, you know, talking with her and just trying to hold her. And the search and rescue crew flew Laura out and uh, they then came back and, and, and got uh, Kevin and me. And uh, so we're, we're removed from the scene underneath the helicopter. And I just instantly collapsed. I just started screaming and bawling as I was being removed from the situation because I knew it was not, not good. And when we, when we were finally dropped there, they were, um, I was told that Laura had been medically evacuated to the nearby hospital, which is uh, about 150 miles away. But I was also told that they'd found a, a faint pulse in her. So I instantly uh, started messaging friends and got, was able to get a drive. You know, I was able to get picked up and, and, and driven to the, the hospital where she was. And uh, when we got there, um, the doctor said that, the, yeah, they, they'd found a faint pulse. But, uh, you know, there was very little sign of life aside from that. And uh, But they were doing all that they could for her. And... Uh, by this point, word had kind of gotten out. So a, a number of like, friends and relatives. I had actually called Laura's brother, who lives 600 miles away, to tell him what had happened, which was one of the worst phone calls I've ever had to make in my life. Um, and um, he'd gotten on a plane and, and he flew out. And uh, Laura's mom had actually just gotten on a plane to Colombia. Laura and her mom share the same sort of adventurous global spirit. So we were trying to figure out how to get a hold of Laura's mom in Colombia, trying to find the hotel that she was at. And um, I, I speak a bit of Spanish. And so I was able to call the hotel and got them to wake her up at one o'clock in the morning. And uh, we'd booked her a plane ticket home. 
I told her she needed to get on the flight right away. So she had literally just landed in Columbia and uh, got on the flight back. And uh, so throughout this whole time, the doctors are, are, are operating on Laura and um, trying to trying to warm her and, uh, and, and revive her. But um, early the next morning, um, the doctor came into, into our hospital room, into a room and, and told us that Laura's bowels had died. And, um, sorry, um, that, uh, oh man, um, that, that, uh, their term was it, it's incompatible with life. So they weren't going to be able to save her. And, uh, so we, we, we went out and basically just sat with Laura at that point. Um, but throughout all this as well, Laura's mom was on a plane back and uh, we were, t- we were telling Laura, you know, that her mom was coming and uh, you could see her heart rate uh, on the screens and you could see her pulse going up and down. And um, eventually as Laura's, Laura's mom's flight was delayed briefly. And, and just to give a bit of context, uh, Laura's dad um, had passed away a number of years prior suddenly while they were away on a trip to South Africa. And so they hadn't gotten to say goodbye to, you know, her father, or, you, know, you know, her mom's husband. And uh, I know that that was really, really hard on Laura and, and her mom, but they weren't able to say goodbye. And so it, it felt really important that Laura's mom was able to say goodbye to Laura. And uh, we were we were looking at the, at the plane app, just trying to like will the plane to land quickly. And um, as we watched Laura's pulse, start to fade i started yelling uh you know call becky call becky is laura's mom's name and uh, uh she answered uh, as the plane was was landing and um she was um, able to talk to laura and say goodbye and as she was doing that laura's pulse stopped completely so laura's mom was able to say goodbye to laura before she died adam i goes without saying that I am so so sorry for your loss but but for the trauma of everything that that you went through that day. Yeah, thank you. But you know the the one thing as well as uh as I said as people uh started hearing about the accident um people started to to congregate around the hospital room and the hospital knew that uh, you know some of them actually knew Laura some of the people in the hospital and um, so they sort of allowed us to have people around Laura. So, you know, she was surrounded by love and caring and, you know, people touching her and holding her. It was in many ways like a really beautiful, dignified farewell, despite how horrible and traumatic and far too soon her accident and death was. Laura and I had talked quite a lot about about death and, and, and compassion and death and what that meant and in some regards this was a compassionate way of going well you know i know when we spoke you said that in her life she taught you a lot about healing and death and that that in a sense she almost prepared you in a way what did you mean by that yeah you know, so from my accident in 2016, you know, Laura and I had spent quite a lot of time talking about trauma and death and just due to the nature of the work that she did and, you know, some of the places that she worked, you know, it's it, life's hard for a lot of people around the world and, you know, death and 
and trauma is a is a is a harsh reality for a lot of people in developing worlds and you know even in our own countries in our own backyards so we, we did talk quite a lot about that and also just about you know the power of vulnerability and uh being open and surrounding yourself with with good and caring people it, those were you know lessons that uh, that she taught me and those were things that helped me cope initially with you know, this deep trauma uh, that I was going through. And, uh, you know, in the days after her death, I had lived with the fact that I triggered the avalanche that, uh, you know, ultimately killed my wife and I wasn't able to save her. You know, and you know, when you, you know, in our Hollywood world, you know, you're able to save the person you love. And I wasn't. And so there was just, you know, a tremendous amount of guilt. And uh, on top of the trauma and grief, and they didn't know how I was going to live with that. I remember going for a, a walk uh, through through town. It's the middle of winter in Canada, and you know, really, really bitterly cold, uh, inhospitable day. And walking past the river, and just thinking how much easier it'd be if I just jumped. I wouldn't have to face, you know, the horrible reality that I was I was going to be living living with. And the the only thing that kept me from it was you know thinking about Laura, and. Your friends and family and what it, that would ultimately do to them and how this, you know, it wouldn't help anybody. It would be me escaping my pain to some degree, but it, it would only cause more pain to other people. And uh, so that's basically what got me from jumping. But I would fully understood in that moment how people make different choices and have a lot of empathy for people who do because I, I get it. And I think, you know, the accident obviously happened in January 2020. And I know you were able to have a celebration of life, but to have the world shut down so quickly after and to be in a place of isolation, I just, oh, I, I, I don't know how you, you got through it, but you, you know, you, you shared with me about grief and the chapters of grief and what that looks like. I guess, how would you articulate that? Or where do you think the misconceptions are around what it looks like to grieve that type of loss? Well, one, I mean, you know, we, we live in a, in a society and culture that just doesn't really talk about or deal with death all that often. Uh, we're often quite removed from it. And for whatever reason, I found that, you know, talking about it, talking about the experience I was going through, once again, you know, the vulnerability thing, um, it opened up a bunch of many other people to share their experiences of grief with me as well. There was something about that like collective support and the fact that other people had been through it and uh, had made it through to the other side really helped to some degree. And so I sort of made it a part of my healing journey to share. And it, it, it helped in other ways as well because you know it, it helped me deal with my trauma. Um, it helped me keep memories of Laura alive as well. So you know, Laura kept a really extensive journals and and sort of going through um, her journals and trying to pull out nuggets of wisdom and sharing them on you know, social media was sort of the platform I chose to use, allowed me to connect with people during this time of isolation that happened after COVID. Whereas normally, you know, I, I probably would have gone away and traveled or sort of run away again. I didn't have that option with COVID. I was forced to sort of sit with everything and uh, connect with people in different ways and connect with the memory of Laura in different ways. Yeah, and that your point of connection was so often sharing her with the world, sharing her words and sharing pictures of her. 
you know, as you said, she played, in spite of not being here in physical body, a real role in your healing. Yeah. So I started seeing her in nature. I'd, I'd sort of feel her presence uh, when I was out in nature. And so it kept nature as a place of deep healing for me, um, you know, whether it was seeing her in, in a star or, uh, you know, in, in just in, in, a, in a beautiful moment when I was out in nature, you know, seeing an animal or just the feeling of snow was was actually really, really healing in many ways for me. Yeah, you know, when we spoke, you illustrated for me, and, it, and the second piece I'll share really made me think, but about these chapters of grief that you had and, you know, the moment when all her toiletries and makeup are in the bathroom and when you choose to take that out, you, you really, all of these sort of vignettes, but you also said that the second year of grief is really a lonely year which just made me think for anyone listening and I'll have you speak to it because it's your truth about why it's lonely because my hope is perhaps it'll be an impetus for people to think about grief when it feels like the tragedy is somewhat behind. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, one of the first things is, you know, grief and healing from grief or learning to live with grief is probably a better way of describing it. It's not linear. It never gets better. It just gets different. Um, I'd say, you know, sort of the edges dull a little bit on it. Um, But, you know, those moments, there's still moments that just just crush me, you know, talking about uh, the accident and thinking about Laura right now still brings me to tears. And there's places and things I see that still bring me to tears a year and a half later. And uh, it still catches me off guard with just how powerful and overwhelming those moments can can become. And um, yeah, you know, initially when, when when you go through a loss and trauma, like people come to you and surround you with uh, with caring and love and empathy and um they look after you but uh you know two months later you know they they get to to move on with their lives and you're still sitting there dealing with it six months later the same thing happens and a year later after a year um you know people have largely moved on with their lives in many degree you know they'll they'll remember laura fun like they'll they'll remember her and they'll think about her and you know they'll, they'll miss her but it's not a day-to-day reality like it is for somebody that you care deeply with. And like every time I walk through our, our door of our home, but, you know, Laura played a huge part in, in designing and decorating. It can be really, really lonely because you're still deep sitting with this really, really deep grief. And the rest of the world kind of feels like it's moved on a little bit from it. And that can be quite lonely and sad. And you don't want to be the person that all, only ever talks about it either. You know, there's also something about that. So Having moments with, uh, you know, like Laura's family members and talking about Laura there can feel really, really comforting. Yeah, I get that. And thank you for sharing that in the way that you did, because I think I think it'll resonate with people. I know you went back to the mountain and the, the scene of the avalanche. Why was that important to you and what was that experience like? Yeah. So August of, uh, of last year. So, um, I guess that'd be about seven months after the avalanche, uh, once all the snow had melted in the mountains, I, I went back to the, to the scene of the avalanche. So when, um, when Laura was caught in the avalanche, she lost her skis and, uh, her ski poles and goggles and, and her cell phone. And, uh, I wanted to go and, and, and get those items and it, it felt important to, to take them away from the mountains of it, you know, a part of her wasn't um, wasn't necessarily tied there, and so I was able to convince a, a bunch of friends to come up there, and we had this uh, 
this moment up in the meadow and you know we actually we found we found her skis i was never able to find her cell phone but it was it was a really interesting experience because when we were there in january it was a really cold stark dark moment you know like it, it felt like death you know mountains in the winter are dead you know the trees are dead there's nothing nothing going on it's um it's a really hostile environment it's not really somewhere you know humans can you're surviving in a place like that you're not thriving and uh when we went back in august it was a completely different experience there was this beautiful alpine meadow with spectacular flowers it was a it was a warm day there's a stream going through it there's birds chirping and it's it's so alive and vibrant and beautiful and um so going back to this really hostile place and sort of being able to to shift my mind frame of the area and sort of plant this different vision of the area sort of loosened its hold over my psyche a little bit but it, it was it, there was a calming effect to it as well which is really powerful and being able to get laura's skis i know i just felt like reclaiming the space to some degree and uh it was a, quite a spiritual moment and you mentioned that you get asked this question a lot sort of the reconciling with nature because it goes without saying that you and laura experience such awe and connection and beauty with nature that you are deeply, deeply drawn to the mountains and these shared experiences. But it also serves as the place of certainly joy and strength and love and connection, but deep pain and trauma. So how do you reconcile, you know, the mountains and your love and these sort of two vastly different experiences that have come with that love? Well, I mean, I guess ultimately, you know, the, it's not the mountain's fault. You know, the mountains just are. They're just, they're beautiful places. They're dangerous places. And, uh, you know, I mean, both Laura and I knew that to some degree. I don't know if you ever, you know, you say you know it, but until you've really experienced it, I'm not sure if you really fully comprehend the power that they have. Um, but it's not the mountain's fault uh, that we were skiing there. You know, it's... Um, so you have the equal connection and draw to the mountain. Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And I, you know, I'd argue I have a much deeper level of respect for the mountains as well. Um, so how I how I move in the mountains and how I experience them is really different. I still backcountry ski and I still climb, but I'm much more aware of, of the potential dangers that are out there and much more, I guess, respectful of them and the force that they have. And how our decisions and choices in the mountains can have these really, really deep impacts. Not and when I'm out there, it's I realize that you know these choices they're not just your own. Even though it can feel like a really selfish act to go, you know, backcountry skiing or climbing, and my choice to do that has as as an impact on every member of my family, anybody who knows me, on the search and rescue crew who have to put their lives at risk when they get out there you know, trying to, trying to save people from those situations. So I'm really conscious that my choices have a much, much broader global impact. And I try to keep that in mind when I'm making decisions about what I will and won't do. And you have shared, as you said, you know, through social media and a beautiful piece in Outside Magazine and, and podcast interviews like today, your story. What do you hope people learn or experience when you share yourself in this story? 
I think probably the most important thing to me is is just, is once again it's the power of vulnerability and opening yourself up and, and talking about our pain and trauma and beauty that we experience as well. Like I think they're all important. They're all a part of a really complete life. And I think the more that we talk about hard topics like trauma and grief, the less scary they are when we actually get there. Because everybody experiences trauma or grief in some form or other throughout their life. It's just, it's a part of the human condition. And I think the more we accept that and talk about it, the better we are able to cope with it when when we're, we're, we're finally confronted with those issues. I think vulner, there's a lot of power in vulnerability and openness and sharing. And I think opening ourselves up to it is powerful. I know there are many, but is there one piece of wisdom or one great lesson that Laura taught you and left you with? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say probably the it's really simple, but it's just be kind, you know, and it is be kind to yourself and be kind to others. And it's incredible what just that little bit of kindness and gentleness, both with yourself. And I think it needs to be with yourself first and allows you to then be kind and gentle with others around you. Everybody's dealing with some form of, of trauma or struggle and uh, understanding that when you're interacting with people can explain a lot about their behaviors or what they're dealing with on, on a, on a given day. And, um, so I think just be kind always. And that Laura actually had that written in her journal. And I think it's such a simple message, but also such a powerful one. And then also, you know, just live life with a lot of, you know, with purpose and passion. And she definitely did that. You know, she pursued her passion. She sort of built the life that she wanted to build for herself. And I hope that I can continue to do that. It's, it's, it's a struggle. It's hard. This is not the life that I envisioned for myself. You know, I, I thought I'd be living a life with Laura and sort of building a life with Laura. But, you know, once again, life throws curveballs and you still have to make the, the most and the best of a life that and the hands that you're dealt and um, trying to do that as best I can. Adam, thank you for sharing Laura with me today, sharing your story in such a brave and vulnerable and intentional way. I am deeply grateful and I know that everybody who listens to this will be better as a result. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Kimmy. I've been fortunate to be given a a platform. So it's, uh, I hope, hopefully I've been able to at least touch one other person. Okay, so we will end with something light. Just speaking about light, that's one other thing for anybody dealing with trauma and grief is um, it's okay to seek happiness. It's okay to seek pleasure. You know, you can experience deep, deep trauma and deep, deep grief and still also allow yourself to try to be happy. And I think we kind of owe it to ourselves and those we love to do that as well. Because I remember like after Laura died, the first time somebody said something funny and I laughed and I was like, am I allowed to do this? Like, is this okay? And, you know, it was was actually in the hospital with Laura as she was right after she had died. And I remember being so internally conflicted. I'm like, is should I be allowed to laugh right now? And the answer is yes, you should. Just like you should be allowed to cry if you feel the need to cry. I think all of those are okay. So sorry, you just when you said light, that just made me think of that. Well, I love that. That was bonus right there, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> You're adding even more wisdom and insight after the formality of the interview. All right, so speaking of light and things that bring you joy, favorite time of day? Oh, I love dusk. Biggest vice? Probably candy. It's funny, I don't have a huge sweet tooth, but I, I, I like my candy. <laughs> I never would have guessed. Mountaineer. 
Add them with the Skittles. <laughs> Best way to spend a Sunday? Uh, being outdoors all day. It doesn't matter whether it's on the ocean or in the mountains. Uh, just being outdoors with, with good people. Uh, and ideally moving the entire time. Favorite song? Ooh, uh, probably uh, I Will Follow You by Michael Bernard Fitzgerald. He's a, he's a friend of mine. And he actually played at Laura's Celebration of Life. And we walked down the aisle to that song. So I Will Follow You by Michael Bernard Fitzgerald. I love that. Three things on your bucket list. Uh, three things on my bucket list. Well, I mean, I uh, have, a, have a, a giant bucket list. But I'd love to, to go to Chile at some point. I think that'd be uh, an amazing country to go visit. I'm looking forward to meeting my new nephew, in a few weeks, who lives in Sweden, and seeing my two nieces and seeing my brother as well. So that one I'll get to be able to check off here in a few weeks, so long as the world doesn't go too COVID crazy in, in that length of time. And uh, third thing, uh, I'd like to write a book at some point. In 10 years, I hope to be. Uh, happy. Thank you again, Adam. You're awesome, and I appreciate it. And I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> No. <laughs> no, thanks a lot. No, and uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time here and uh, for doing what you do as well. It's super important. All right. Thank you, Adam. This episode was brought to you by All The Happier. All The Happier is a new digital class and platform. We get inspired by the stories, the lessons, and the wisdom we hear on this podcast. And then we partner those lessons with the science and research of positive psychology. The goal is to help people like you and me live with less stress and more joy, meaning, and connection. We have a digital course that you can engage in, and we have lots of great free content as well. An awesome newsletter. You can follow us on Instagram. So I hope you will check us out either on Instagram at allthehappier, or you can subscribe to our newsletter at allthehappier.com. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.